This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of Mother's Day here in the U.S. this coming weekend, we're joined by artist, floral designer, textile designer, and all-around creative Louisa Roebuck, talking about her book, Foraged Flora. Stay with us. So I have a long line of women who embraced beauty, created beauty, celebrated beauty, and I'm not ashamed of the domestic arts. You know, I I think the domestic arts are extraordinarily valuable, infinitely valuable. I mean, our home is our home, and to create a beautiful nest to me seems to be one of the most noble endeavors. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of Mother's Day here in the U.S. this coming weekend, we're joined by artist, floral designer, textile designer, and all-around creative Louisa Roebuck, speaking with us about her book, Foraged Flora, which she co-created with Sarah Lonsdale and photographer Lori Frankel. For Louisa, and then tangentially for us, The foraged beauty of her landscape offers out a lovely and loving reframing of how to be in our spaces, how to foster deeper seeing, and how to offer our mothers, physical and earthly, gratitude and love with intentional time and gesture. Perhaps the best Mother's Day offerings of all. Louisa joins us today via Skype from her home and garden in Ojai, California, where we can hear the breeze and hear the birds. Welcome, Louisa. Well, thank you, Jennifer. That's the most extraordinary introduction and very moving, and I'm just thrilled to be here, and I feel very lucky to be having this conversation today. When I first got your book, I, of course, fell in love with it, just the holding (laughs) of the book and then the the beautiful pictures. And uh, just a few months ago, I thought, that is the perfect Mother's Day gift to <laughs> offer listeners, is this conversation with you about this work that you do and that shows up so tangibly beautifully in, in the book itself. So I want you to describe for listeners exactly what you do, because it is multifaceted and interwoven with all kinds of creative endeavors. Well, thank you. I I want to say that my mother is sitting 10 feet from me right now. She's visiting from Ohio. Mother in all senses of the word. I love that you invoked that. But it's pretty special that my mom's here right now. And of course, so much comes from our mothers. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite compliments are when people say they've given it to their mother. Mm -hmm. I just that just makes my heart really, really, really warm. What am I doing? It's I'm thrilled to be living in Ojai. It's another, you know, kind of Garden of Eden for me in California. I most recently lived in West Marin in Stinson Beach, and we've been here about three years. Currently, I'm still madly in love with Forage Flora. We have been lucky enough to to speak about the book. It's all across America and Mm. about 
the work and the message and the beauty and and what I'm really passionate about, as you know, is which is kind of the environmental imperative mm-hmm. um, and that intersection. So that's one thing that we've been doing. Um, we just were up in Marin speaking Ross. We've spoken recently in Carmel. We're going to Oklahoma City and speaking to the Myriad Gardens in May. So that's turned into a really lovely endeavor, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I also continue to paint. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a monoprint artist in Ohio. I have a studio for the first time in my life, a proper studio. We're doing interior plantscapes. We just were in Sebastopol at California Carnivores. I don't know if you know California I Carnivores. I do, yeah. <laughs> Which we love. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's just always a peak experience. Damon is fantastic and doing incredible conservation. So we're trying to take the kind of same approach, um, not engaging in agribusiness, uh, to installing beautiful interior plantscapes for clients. We're doing a little bit of garden design and no textile design at the moment, but I just yesterday was speaking about doing a line of forage flora inspired, um, bedding. So stay tuned, I would say. Nice. Lovely. So (laughs) let's step back a little bit because your creative life is like a a garden of diversity. Pardon, pardon the pun, but that was so easy, easy to, (laughs) to, because you just see all of these different things growing and sort of in symbiotic relationship with one another. You know, your your mom is there. You said she was visiting from Ohio. Take us back to your early influences. Who who were the the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a person that was so both emotionally, creatively, intellectually engaged with the world in this way? Well, I think any artist, especially a woman artist, would be remiss not to thank their mothers, their grandmothers, their great-grandmothers first. Um, My mom is a great, great lover of beauty and created just the most harmonious. She's a Libra, so she's full of harmony (laughs) and beauty and peace. And I grew up in a just gorgeous home, beautiful textiles, beautiful art. She's a watercolorist. Um, she's an incredible cook. She's, of course, a gardener. Um, my great grandmother, we were just talking about her, was an art educator in a little town in Ohio, Medina, Ohio. And we just remembering that she would, she had passion vines growing inside the house and blooming. Um, she was an enamel artist. So I have a, a long line of women who, embraced beauty, created beauty, celebrated beauty. Um, and I'm not ashamed of the domestic arts. You know, I, I think the domestic arts are extraordinarily valuable, infinitely valuable. I mean, our home is our home and to create a beautiful nest to me seems to be one of the most noble endeavors. My father was part Cherokee and I speak about this. I really believe that he helped to teach me to see in a different way than um, kind of conventional culture at that time in the 60s. So he was a deep lover of the natural world. And I spent a lot of time um, outdoors with my family. And he really taught me about seeing as an active 
an active endeavor and as a way to experience the world in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. I've been using this um, Grandma del Toro quote frequently, um, seeing is love. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my mantras. And I think my earliest memories, some of my earliest memories they're very emotional. I'm, I'm a very nonlinear person. And so I have childhood memories that are very rooted in um, having a spiritual experience, looking at the clouds or looking at trees or being on a stream in Kentucky, a stream, you know, on the side of a stream with watercress beds. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always rescuing animals, little critters snakes and lizards and mice. And, um, so I think also, you know, in the book, I begin the book with speaking about my beloved rescue dog scrap. And so I think that was also always part of me was that there were so many things that needed rescued and, um, and my floral work is really foraging and gleaning is very connected to that, you know, that there's enough, we don't need to purchase. There's so many creatures that need our love, And I also think as a child, I really, I did not buy the human centric worldview. Um, I wasn't such a big fan of humans and I, I really, um, always took solace in nature and creatures and, and deeply believed and experienced that we can understand what animals and plants are saying to us and the magical realism, what we call magical realism, but a lot of people just considered truth of communication um, with non-humans. And I, I think I always thought that we kind of defined everything too much through human eyes as mm. a child. Even. Yeah. So so walk us through the journey that got you from there. <laughs> right? From seven. Yeah, yeah that's like seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that person that, that you started off as and were, were molded into and, and what got you to you know, the the kind of cusp of forged flora in your work in the Bay Area at Shea Panisse, which is where it maybe all started to come together for you. Yeah. Well, so I went to art school briefly. I I had a brief stint at RISD um, and did what a lot of people do. I waited tables. I worked in the restaurant business. Um, I moved to California when I was 32 um, with my first husband and yeah, I started working at Chapinese five days later. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I think in a really wonderful way, open hearted way, I did not know what I was entering into. I wasn't, um, starstruck. I didn't know a lot of the history. I was kind of entering into it, um, with a lot of, naive wonder in a way that I, I wasn't, I wasn't schooled in Alice, you know, and, and I think that really served me. Um, but I just was immediately completely seduced by the beauty Mm -hmm. and the passion and the soul and the level of craft and the attention to detail. And of course the hyper seasonality and hyper locality and how, with that as a structure, a guiding structure, so much abundance and beauty and craft and luxury can come out of that, that construct. Um, and then I also just fell, you know, madly in love with 
California, I mean, walking around the hills in Berkeley to me was like Narnia. I mean, yeah. I just could not <laughs> believe coming from Ohio. I was like, what? There's Lady Banks growing three stories up a redwood and jasmine and next to proteas and palm trees and redwoods and just the like wonky mashup and the um, incredible fertility and and also I became really, really fascinated um, with the ecosystems, the microclimates and the fact that every couple of weeks something was different, you know, mm-hmm. that it, it all moves very quickly in California, right? Like yeah. it's like, you know, and so, and then I started, I had this very interesting, I was living part-time in Oakland in the hood and part-time in Marshall. And I started driving a lot, a lot, a lot, spending a lot of time in West Marin and driving and and that kind of takes me to the Gary Snyder idea of paths. And I started just really observing my paths and um, wanting to bring what I saw inside into my shops. Um, and that's, that's, and I also saw, and I think I've talked about this a lot, that my community that was so committed to hyper-local and hyper-seasonal and local vor living with their food, um, we're not making the connection with the floral world. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that as an opportunity, um, you know, to, to take the same ethos to the floral world. And it honestly wasn't happening. No one was doing it without cheating. No one was doing it like a hundred percent, like Alice Waters does it a hundred percent. And I wanted to take that same level of commitment to the floral world. Yeah. So in in this description, you've referred to um, the, your shops. And, oh, yeah. And we referred to your work at Chez Panisse. What were you actually doing? When I was at Chez Panisse, I was just a server. I And then um, later, and then I had clothing stores. I had a community mm. hub, art clothing. It was a shop in um, Oakland and Rockridge Mm -hmm. called August. And I was an early proponent of the same concept. I say it's all one song that you can have beautiful clothing that is environmentally sensitive, no sweatshops. You can have luxury without compromising sustainability. I curated art and, and I started doing the work in those stores. I started bringing in huge magnolia branches and I could do whatever I wanted because I had 2,000 square feet. So if I wanted to bring in my wagon full of wisteria and bees to my shop, it was my shop and I could do that. Right. So that was really, really freeing. What year was this? So the shop was 2005 to 2009, pre-Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I lost those businesses in the economic crash. Yeah. And I was reabsorbed into my Chez Panisse community to, to do the work with my friends who were chefs and caterers started hiring me to do events because no yeah. one else was doing it completely simpatico, you know, the same narrative, the same approach yeah. as Chez Panisse. Yeah. And so at what point do you decide I'm going to put this together into a book? There's something here because I think that there has been great progress. Your, yes. The, the beauty of your book is just one 
great example of that. But at this point that you are thinking about these things and they are starting to come together for you, there was no progress. And no. Um, and it was it was a concept that was just an enormous cultural blind spot for people whose hearts were absolutely in the right place. They and, were in the right place. A lot of it was not, it was just innocent, like not connecting the dots. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Tell us where how you go from this kind of budding. I just am going to work that metaphor, Louisa. Uh, but this budding <laughs> interest and awareness of your own that then brought you into relationship with Sarah Lonsdale, your co-creator on this book, and you guys decided to do this great experiment. Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, that community is such a – and a, pardon, we're going to do another silly, punny metaphor. It's such <laughs> a fertile ground, yeah. right? I mean – and there's so much commitment to what we're talking about, to the environment, to locovore, at the same time to this ascetic rigor and craft. And what happened was, it's interesting, Sarah and I started doing some remodelista posts around my work. And I want to say that was around 2010, mm-hmm. maybe 2009, because I lost the shop in 2008-9, right, in the mm-hmm. crash. Mm-hmm. And, and then all at the same time, you know, like I had been doing the work, but all of a sudden, I think the collective consciousness, the gestalt started to also see, wow, like this is something interesting that's happening. We're pushing the needle, you know, we're, we're starting to figure it out with our food. And now let's look at it with our floral work. And Sarah did a few posts on Remodelista. It was the early days of Remodelista also, and they were well received. And then Chez Panisse had their 40th birthday celebration. And I was chosen to do, I don't know if you remember, but for the 40th birthday, they had a series of dinner parties Mm -hmm. raising money for Edible Schoolyard. And I was chosen to do, I think, three houses and parts of the after party. I mean, that was my community. And so I did like Michael Pollan's house and I did three houses. And the work started to get more attention in the press. Mm -hmm. And then I was really lucky. Sylvan Mishima Mishima Brackett, who owns Rentaro in San Francisco, he and I were colleagues from Chez Panisse. In fact, he says I hired him for his first gig at August, which is adorable. And his wife, Jenny Wapner, was an editor at 10 Speed Press. Jenny had been observing what I was doing, doing these huge installations. And <laughs> and it was like a labor of passion. And I was barely keeping my head afloat. And Jenny came to me and said, you want to do a book with 10 Speed? And I said, you know, Jenny, I, I do. I love 10 Speed. She said, I want to document what you're doing. I said, but then you're not going to believe this. I said, I don't need another labor of love. My whole <laughs> life is a labor of love. And then Sarah bumped into someone from 10 Speed and uh, I think a year or two later, and she said, we still want to do this book with Louisa and with a co-author. And I was newly in love with Curtis and I knew he would be really helpful. The timing just was right. I, I, as you, as you noticed, I, I love collaborations and Sarah and I are very yin and yang, you know, she, I'm all moody and, and nonlinear and, you know, out there and a super pagan hippie and she's like British and very structured. And it was a very great collaboration. So when Sarah came to me, I said, yeah, let's do it. 
it's been the most rewarding creative project of my life. And it's still, I mean, people still contact me every single day. Louisa Roebuck is an artist and writer. Her book, Foraged Flora, A Year of Gathering and Arranging Wild Plants and Flowers, is a lovely reminder of the heart of Mother's Day offerings the world over. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. You all might have noticed how I love a seasonally aligned calendar date these past few weeks especially. We kicked off our Habitat series with the vernal equinox. We ended it with Earth Day. May Day was last week and Mother's Day this week. It could be I'm a brainwashed handmaiden for marketing or, or let's hope for this one, shall we? that I'm tapping into something I personally long for increasing in my own life and daily rhythms. And that's this, this very idea of seasonal alignment and the natural impulse to ritually market and celebrate it. Earth Day and Mother's Day were chosen to happen with the heady first flush of spring for good reasons. Your own natural energy is ready for such generative acknowledgement and reflective creativity. The vernal equinox is celestial, and May Day is an ancient day of spring fete as well. While anything can be reduced to a soundbite and a grocery store greeting card, It's up to us to reclaim these days and seasons in our own ways, to our own expansion and deepening, individually and culturally. Not because someone told us to, or we feel obligated to, but because our cellular impulse calls us to this marking of time, space, place, and meaning. Happy Mother's Day to anyone who's ever mothered another and anyone who has ever been fortunate enough to be mothered by person or by place. This greatly transcends gender or sexual orientation as anyone in the above two groups knows. And if there's ever a time of year to lay down in full body contact with this generous earth who carries us along our way every day of our lives, providing the air, water, food, beauty, daylight, and nighttime we need to thrive, this is that season. Do it. Lay down on her. Put your bare feet to her. And remember, you are reliably held by her, carried by her through everything. I know I get a little touchy-feely sometimes. Maybe you're rolling your eyes. But no one else has to see you do this, so just humor me. You'll be glad you did. Now, back to our conversation with Louisa Roebuck of Foraged Flora. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In celebration of Mother's Day, we're speaking today with Louisa Roebuck, co-author with Sarah Lonsdale of Foraged Flora, a visual and narrative year 
of seeing, exploring, and interacting with the foraged beauty of their landscapes. Welcome back. I'm absolutely sure that it has to do with your tenacity, clearly. (laughs) But I will also say that it has to do with the fact that it tapped into something that was really important. And even though we have seen good progress these last five, Mm. six years, we have a A lot lot. more progress to make. And I, there there are a couple of things I want to follow up on there. And and the first one is the, the, the crazy truth of Mm -hmm. the fact that the economic downturn took your stores away, but cleared your plate for this next chapter of your life. And I wish that culturally it had shifted as many people's lives as it has yours and mine, I think, Mm -hmm. um, to really recalibrate what is valuable and what is a meaningful and important life. And this is a, this is a recurring theme. that And sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, on all levels, like you yeah, know, environmentally, like emotional, e- economic, all of those, all of those things. You touched on the idea of this kind of cultural gestalt. So Sarah was the the founder of Remodelista. She was one of the founders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. then um, so we'll say co-founder, and yes, <laughs> um, and then eventually Gardenista came out of that. But this was prior to 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 that at this point because yes. Remodelista was so new, and so the, yes. the the two of you come together with Lori Frankel, and as you um, noted, like uh, was one of the first things I did notice is that you are clearly a very place-based and collaborative person uh, on a variety of levels. Talk about how the three of you developed the idea for the book and then went about putting it in place and and, and the kind of conceit of the book that is both romantic and, and very pragmatic. The combination of pragmatic and romantic is so integral, and I'm also so thankful to Jenny at 10 speed for that, because I wanted the book to reach as many eyes as possible. And I knew left to my own devices, it would be more like an art book. Right. And so Sarah and the team at 10 speed were really extraordinary. It, it, it kind of forcing upon me a container that then I could work in. And, and that's also one of the things I learned at Chez Panisse. I mean, Chez Panisse is extremely codified. It's extremely rigorous. I mean, there's a lot of rules, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I saw was that in that structure, that really, really almost like Japanese, obviously French, old world structure, you would see the creativity from each chef come through. And I knew that about myself. I needed the structure of Sarah Lonsdale, of 10 speed to then create in a way that could, could see it to be out there in the world and not just amongst the 2% or 1%. The funny thing about the structure is nature provided the structure. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times as humans, we like to take credit for things that we shouldn't take credit for. (laughs) And the book is structured. Every chapter is a different month. Every chapter is a different location in California. Every place that we shot, and you're right, I'm a Gary Snyder head. I mean, everything is about place to me, almost, Mm -hmm. um, is someone in our lives. Like, we didn't rent a studio 
and bring props. Like each chapter is, you know, Sylvan, the Rantara chapter is at his restaurant. He's one of the most important people in my life. David Hoffman, you know, in Lagunitas is a member of our community and this biodynamic, you know, God to me. Like, I mean, he's like, it's just bonkers what he's created. We shot at my friend's apartment in the Gaylord in uh, L.A., where Curtis and I spent several months of our lives. So each location was somebody that's really important in our life. And I think that even if the reader doesn't know that, that has a emotion or you know, it creates intrinsically a feeling of place because we're connected to that place. Because the work is hyper-seasonal, the idea that I wanted to articulate, and it's nature's idea, not my idea, is that every month I wanted to document and work with what was most beautiful in that month, in that location. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to Shape and East too, right? Like there's a time, there's a specific two-week window when the artichokes are the most, you know, incredible. There is a specific window for salmon. There's a specific window for Ikura. There's a specific window for Philadelphus. There's a specific window for Lady Banks roses. So everything in my mind, and this is why it's actually, the other thing I wanted to say is that it's a lot harder to do work this way. Going to the flower market's really easy to think about, okay, when are we going to get the Buckeye branches when they're first starting to green out? And then when are we going to, and then we're going to mix, we're going to combine that with magnolias, you know, or we're going to, 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 to work with and document those combinations as they're happening in real time. Most photographers and art directors don't want to work that way. It's hard. Yeah. It's time consuming. It is a labor of love. It's And we shop for 13 months. Most people don't do that when they create a book either. Mm-hmm. So the structure was provided by our 12 months. And then there's a 13th month. That's the epilogue because I love death and decay. And so I wanted to articulate a chapter that was all these kind of decayed bits from all the months. I love the seasonality and I love the, the each month. And then the different places within each month. And one of the things that I, I I do love about it is that I don't necessarily know any of these people, you know, and clearly some of yeah. them are, are famous and important and I still don't know them and it still doesn't <laughs> and that's matter. Good. Right. It does because matter. it's the yeah. it's the universal in that particular that you are inviting all of us to engage more deeply with the people in our lives that we love, with the spaces Absolutely. and the floral display throughout seasons that are ours. You're you're not saying, here's mine, you know, mimic it. You're saying, learn, learn from it and go out and do this in your world because it will it will make your your life better. And we wanted it to it's a natural extension of our community, but we didn't want it to be um, esoteric or rarefied in that way. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, the best compliment or one of the things I love hearing more than anything is that I, exactly what you articulated is that I want people to notice their backyard, their paths, their neighbor's persimmon tree. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about you observing your place. Absolutely no formulas ever and bringing the beauty that you observe in the natural world into your life in that moment in time, no matter how big or small. 
We need to give a shout out to Lori, the photographer. The beauty of the work that we did together. I mean, the book would not be the book without her Mm -mm. extraordinary photography. Right. That's a difficult thing to do. She captured the moodiness, the evocativeness. So I just want to make sure that Lori gets a really big shout out, Lori Frankel, for that work. Louisa Roebuck is an artist and writer. Her book, Foraged Flora, reminds us of the heart of Mother's Day offerings. Time, intention, gratitude, and that seeing, really seeing, someone or someplace is an act of deep love. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Okay, so thinking out loud here, this thing about seeing, seeing, really seeing, being an act of deep love. Think about this. Give yourself some time to think about this. And then consider it as you consider your own mother or father, your siblings, your children, your friends, your garden, your larger landscape that generally just whizzes by. These, in some form or another, all constitute your home. That's it. That's all. What do you really see? I hope you really see and really love them all. Embracing, in the ways that work for you, the domestic arts that constitute caring for all these lives that help make up our home. Now, back to our conversation with Louisa Roebuck. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In celebration of Mother's Day, we're joined today in conversation by Louisa Roebuck, co-author with Sarah Lonsdale of Foraged Flora, a visual and narrative year of seeing, exploring, and interacting with the foraged beauty of the landscape around her. Can you think of anything better for Mother's Day than offering your mother or whomsoever nurtured you in this life, a hand-picked posy, a walk in the woods, a picnic by a stream or in a park? I can't. We're back now with Louisa Roebuck to hear more. So as I look at each chapter, there are a couple of elements that really stand out to me. One is the element in which you and Sarah are in conversation, and she is asking you questions about what are you doing? Why do you do it that way? Why right. why these plants? And I love that uh, very simple back and forth between the two of you because the, it holds so much information that is very easily absorbed from that conversational perspective. Yeah, and that, I'm so thankful for Sarah and Jenny again. I think that interviews are, uh, as you said, a great mechanism for for conveying information, both personal mm-hmm. and non-personal. That was our approach to having an educational arm without it feeling too like craft show DIY or right. formula. That was a great way to just be in natural dialogue. Sometimes it's all in my head and without someone like Sarah asking really 
which to me would feel like obvious questions, I'm not going to be able to articulate process Hmm. without being prodded a little bit. It kind of goes back to that concept you were mentioning earlier about the freedom of being able to be exuberant and wild within a a structure and a container, sort of walking us through what you do and letting each person take what they wanted from that, which I I really love. Now, there were a couple of really standout plants all the way across across (laughs) all seasons, which um, I think probably bear quite a bit of symbolism and meaning for for you or or that is how it felt to me by the end and I get a strong sense that probably you don't have a favorite uh, chapter in the book <laughs> that they're they're all your favorites but one of the ones that really resonated for me was the chapter with David Hoffman who who you mm. referenced just a little earlier walk us through that one well you know what I'd love to do since you've given me permission to read quotes yes. Um, This is one of my favorite quotes, and I titled this chapter Ides of March, Mm. which in of itself I think is a – it's a really great reference because also Marin County has been threatening to tear his whole property down. I don't know if you know that. Mm. So there was a – there's a level of betrayal with the David Hoffman property that he's built this biodynamic visionary property that is more – my belief system that his guiding principle is Mother Earth, not West Marin and Marin's zoning commission. And he he and so the Ides of March, that's why I t- titled it Ides of uh. March. Um, but the quote is, I have said to the worm that art my mother and my sister, William Blake. Mm-hmm. And to me, that says everything. Yeah. Um, and and David is. He is a soil, he's a soil aficionado and he has worked for years and years and years to bring the soil on that property to the most high vibration, rich biodynamic state it can be. And I firmly believe that one of the reasons that that, or not one of the reasons, the reason that the apple blossoms there and the forget-me-nots and, you know, what we forged and gleaned, and I'm using the word gleaned more and more, and I, I do want to wrap, talk about that, that the apple blossom there was much more alive because of his soil stewardship. Yeah. Most of the, the photographs in the book are, they, they have a lush simplicity, maybe is, is a good way I to, like that. To, to put it. And But I, I felt this particularly in these photographs and cultural and spiritual overtones in, mm-hmm. in these installation arrangements is as strong as it is anywhere in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way the, the plants and the vines and the branches are, are kind of almost starting to grow into the, the the places and the things around them, whether they're tea baskets or uh, stone. I'm looking at that image right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, or the stone temple, um, you know, they're, they're just really beautiful. And there are whole narratives in each of these images, which mm-hmm. is both the genius of the of Lori and of what you're doing there. Mm. Talk a little well, bit. Well, and we joked that there could have been a whole book from the David Hoffman. <laughs> yes. No, we had 3,000 images from David Hoffman, so, wow. something near there. And editing that chapter was so painful for me. He's had 
Zen Buddhist monks coming. And, you know, there's been people working on this property for, I don't know, 20 plus years. And it really is like being in an 18th century Chinese village. His level, the level of beauty and artifacts and everything was like a temple or a ruin. There was all, also parts of the property that reminded me of like a Terry Gilliam set. You know, it was just <laughs> mind boggling. So for me, it really was. And my work, as you know, it's all about it's in relationship to whatever the architecture, whatever the room, whatever the vessels. And so, you know, the whole the whole property is full of, you know, puer. I mean, he would just throw puer cakes on the side of the hill for compost, you know, <laughs> and like the tea baskets and and, you know, the countless tea vessels. And yeah, so that. I mean, I almost feel like I can't take credit. I mean, it's really like get out of the way. Right. It's like bring bring as many beautiful materials to the site as possible. And it was, you know, we had Redbud and Lady Banks and roses from the police station and Ross. I'm not kidding. And, you know, lilac and wisteria and apple blossoms from David Hoff right there. And forget-me-nots that were like cut, you know, little picked like on the steps where we you know, where we did that installation. So really for those types of installations, I really need, it's about quieting the mind. It really is. And getting out of the way and letting that lady banks bramble, go where it wants to go. And we call it Jenga and just, you know, no chicken wire, no structure besides the natural structures in the vessel. And, the architecture. And it's that chapter. I just, I mean, I still would like to do a book with the remaining outtakes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know if it's a parable. I don't know if it's a mantra, but that, um, statement, um, learning to just get out of the way sometimes is it it kind of comes back to what it means to, to be a, a good gardener or, learning mm-hmm. to see is getting out of our own way and letting it happen. Um, and then seeing it for what it is and, and valuing it for just that. And being slow, because that's something that we haven't said. Right. So, you know, shape and yeast and that world is all about slow food. Right. And that's the other thing that I started to see in the floral world that people, I mean, Deborah Prinzing has slow flowers. That's become a phrase, but that was not a phrase than I was when I began doing the work and Mm -hmm. David's property evolved very slowly. And so we spent two days. I mean, we spent two 13 hour days on that property shooting. And so there's something also about observing and doing the work. It's a weird combination of slowly and quickly, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're working with perishable things, but there needs to be a slowness about it also. I, I want you to elaborate a little bit on your definitions of foraging and gleaning and the, the importance in the differentiation for you. Yeah, I'm really talking about this every time I present or speak. So foraging, the Latin root of foraging is more related to, and I say jokingly, but it's kind of true, pillaging, going out into the fields in a more aggressive manner and taking, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and when I, foraging for me would be, in my definition, 
when I tromp around on the mountain, you know, on Mount Tam, for instance, and I'm cutting bay or I'm looking for wild fennel on the side of the road. And I want to say I my ethics all goes back to nature. So I don't ever cut trillium. I don't ever pull lichen from the branches. I only cut bay because I know the parks, there's more than enough bay. You know what I mean? I cut fennel because the park service wants to eradicate it. Um, so foraging was like the roses on the side of the road in Alima, right? When I'm like out driving around and I'm are like Buckeye branches, but gleaning. And I just went to see Agnes Varda's film again, the gleaners. Have you seen the gleaners? Yeah. Yeah. So gleaning is this ancient idea. You know, these are all ancient, 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 ancient ideas. And I heard someone the other day say it goes back to the Bible. And I was like, yeah, no, it goes back way before the Bible. <laughs> made me laugh. But because we're a Western-centric culture, I talk about in Europe, especially medieval Europe, and still, you know, the Agnes Varda film talks about it so eloquently. The aristocrats <clears throat> took the first picks, the best grains, the unblemished fruit, the best hops. And then whatever was blemished or starting to turn or fell on the ground, the serfs, right, were allowed to come in and take. And it was kind of a, I say, you know, it was like food stamps in a way. I mean, it was a full cycle. And I talk about snout to tail in my work also. So it was an effort to have there not be waste, agrarian waste, and an effort also to feed your agrarian workers. And in this country, 40% of all food is wasted. And yeah. I don't even want to know how much in the floral industry. It's probably worse. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But so gleaning is when like Cindy and Doug, for instance, you know, from Shed, let me go on to their home farm in Healdsburg and cut whatever I want. Or when I walk around town and say to people, are you going to cut your persimmons? Or are you using those oranges? Or can I trim your jasmine? Um, when you're on someone's property with permission and you're, you're taking the bounty, the abundance, what's not being used, what's overlooked, what's considered a weed, what isn't the perfect blossom, that's gleaning. I mean, and much more. That's a very cursory definition right, of it. Right. But what I do, actually more of what I do is gleaning. That's the irony. And in fact, we wanted to use the word, I wanted to use the word gleaning in the subtitle, but but it was determined it was not an attractive word, so it didn't get used. <laughs> the way these things happen. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate that. I really do appreciate that glossing because it does get to some of the issues around foraging right. in our world. And it gets to some of the issues around waste as well, Louisa, which I, um, yeah. I, I think is a wonderful thing to highlight. The... So now I want to come back to the slow because we're, mm -hmm. we're coming very close to the end of our time. And... I want, you know, I think we, we talk about slow, we read about slow, we encourage ourselves to slow down, but how often we actually do it is, mm, you know, uh, it, it goes back and forth, I would guess, especially on a holiday that is supposed to celebrate one of the people in our lives who give everything, speaking of labors of mm. love, right? Motherhood right. Is, is one of those. And and fatherhood as well is. I mean, parenthood, it's not about gender. It's about this role right. we play. Nurturing. Yeah. and Caretaking. Yeah. yeah. And so 
I just loved the idea of encouraging listeners, young and old, to say, how can I not succumb to marketing of the world? And how can I go spend time or allow my mother time to go out and be in this world and glean some beauty and glean a little floral or foliage arrangement together or or allow her to do it on her own. Like if you were going to give these permission slips to to the <laughs> mothers and the and the families, Children. yeah, the families yeah. that are trying to support them in this world, what would those permission slips be, Louisa? Well, I first of all, I was so thrilled when I saw that you know, I just I'm so thrilled that you're talking about this because it's one of my again mantras and um the I, the one metaphor I like to use is that our culture is so type A and so action busy obsessed in a very unhealthy way. Maurice Sendak spoke very eloquently about his childhood and where his imagination came from, and he speaks very eloquently about him being a sick child. And there's a lot of connection between children who have time in bed daydreaming and being sick, being creative. And there's a lot of science for it. And this idea, what I deeply believe is that we all need fallow time, just like a garden. Mm -hmm. A garden isn't always active. It isn't always growing. Mm -hmm. We need fallow time. We need fallow time spiritually, physically, creatively. We need to lay around. We need to daydream. We need to take two-hour walks. We need to look to our animal brothers and sisters for lessons in napping and just walking. And I think you're right. When we um, wander around our neighborhood and pick flowers for our mothers, which is what I did all the time as a child, and my mother never reprimanded me for it. When I speak, so many women come up to me and they say, I've been doing this forever. And they remember, they have a connection to the flowers that they picked for their mother are the flowers that their children picked for their, mm-hmm. them. And they put them in a <laughs> sacred vase and they don't do that with the poisonous lilies from the lily ranch. I'm really conscious. I, I'm a very, very radical environmentalist and I could go on for hours about the evils of agribusiness and poisoning our watersheds and our soil sheds and the women who grow that. And to me, when I see an agribusiness rose or a lily grown with horrific pesticides on the Smith River, one of the most beautiful rivers on the planet and the Oregon-California border, it's hideous to me. Because I look at that and I see the cost Mm -hmm. to the soil shed, the watershed, the animals, you know, every part of the chain Nothing is cheap. Everything that we feel is cheap, you know, a $14.99 bouquet of roses comes at tremendous cost. We just don't see it. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to summarize here. My my first permission slip I'm getting from you is get yourself fallow time. Take fallow time and protect it. My second permission slip is see the cost in the things that that are available or come to us in life and really seek out the ones that have a a low clo- cost to the world and a high value to you. The third permission slip would be what? Well, I think 
I think that the connection that we have when we give a gift to our mothers or to our children or to anyone, when we have harvested that, when we've grown it, when we've collected it, when we picked it with our own hand, when our friend grew it, um, that's a more meaningful, powerful, beautiful, full of life force gift. And I think even if people don't intellectually break it down in that way, there's something so primal in us that we remember that, that we all, if we go with our mothers into the garden, I mean, what could be a bigger metaphor than that? Right. Mm -hmm. And pick flowers together. The difference between that experience and getting agribusiness that's been sprayed in pesticides, grown with underprivileged workers, refrigerated, transported across the globe. I mean, to me, those aren't even in the same universe. Um, And I think that increasingly I'm feeling like any way that I can do no harm, I'm thankful for that. You know, it's a really complicated landscape out there right now environmentally. And and the flowers are such a silly reason to harm the environment yeah, to me. Yeah, the, you know? There's it's terrible just, irony there. Yes. There's terrible irony. And I think that's what I was alluding to, the irony that something that's meant to be beautiful ends up being so hideous to me when it's a when it's agribusiness. Yeah. And I think that I think that we are returning I think as a species, I hope that we're returning to wanting the William Blake quote, you know, mm-hmm. I said to the worm that are my mother and my sister, I, I think that we, we are really craving that kind of immediate, you know, naturally occurring beauty in our lives. And, and we as a species, the, it resonates so deeply with us when it's, you know, an heirloom rose that we grew or when it's jasmine on the side of the house or, you know, the wisteria on the side of the road and you can see the bees and the pollinators or I have passion vines blooming right now in my backyard. That's an utterly different experience than a Colombian rose or a peony flown from New Zealand or, you know, I I don't want to pick on the peonies, but I do, but, you know, we know in our hearts and our souls, we know the difference and our mothers know the difference. And, and I think that's why our mothers love to receive a handpicked anything Mm -hmm. from us. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest today. It has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a wonderful hour on my deck in Ojai. So thank you so much. Artist, floral designer, textile designer, and all-around creative, Louisa Roebuck is the co-creator of the book Foraged Flora, a year of gathering and arranging wild plants and flowers from 10-speed press. For Louisa, and tangentially for us, the foraged beauty of her landscape offers out a lovely, and loving, reframing of how to be in our spaces, how to foster deeper seeing, and how to offer your mother, physical and earthly, gratitude and love with intentional time and gesture. Because seeing, really seeing, a person or place, be they gardener or garden, is a profound act of deep love. 
Happy Mother's Day. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Foraged Flora, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.